This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Dream Hounds of Paris. Herbs. Shakespearean gaming. And the supernatural tradecraft of the Troubles. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash msu. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. We open our closet, and the hats that cascade down are all identical bowler hats, full of apples and fish and fire. Among our many hats, we have sauntered out upon the boulevards of Paris for Dream Hounds of Paris. And this hat being primarily Robin's hat, let's pass it to him. And as we dump out all the clock parts and uh, radioactive uh, rainbow bits, Robin, tell us about the hat that remains. So I guess the key point to make about Dream Hounds of Paris and its companion volume, The Book of Ants, is that they are now available for pre-order from Pelgrane Press. And although your Dracula dossier Kickstarter is ticking along like a house on vampiric fire, uh, we don't want to let this other title get missed in the uh, shuffle. So we're going to be talking about it a lot on this podcast, in part because I think it makes a really great opportunity to have a bunch of different segments. So we're going to go on and uh, over the next little while. And it's just so cool. Yes. Um, And so we're going to have sort of a series of 
episodes with segments in it in the way that we did the Nazi occult a while ago, because uh, this breaks down really well. So next week, we'll sort of do Surrealist 101. And then after that, we'll inaugurate the Culture Hut and talk about some prime major figures in the Surrealist uh, movement Culture in each segment. Hut. But, that hut will probably be very attractive. Yes, indeed. It will be a, a fetching hut indeed. But anyway, I thought we would talk about what the project is and what the genesis of it was. And Ken, you were there for what seemed like the borning of it, but in fact, this is something that I'd been thinking about for a while when I went to see an AGO exhibit of uh, Surrealism and the Decorative Arts at the Art Gallery of Ontario a while ago, and was struck by the degree to which many of the paintings, because surrealism, in its, especially in its um, visual arts capacity, is about content and narrative in a way that a lot of other avant-garde art movements of the beginning of the century or, the, or even the end of the previous century. Or the beginning of this century, frankly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they have a, a pictorial and a narrative sense about them, and uh, that sense often evokes horror. And uh, also there's a sort of a focus on biological forms or biomorphic forms that sort of gets borrowed from Art Nouveau. And some of those look kind of, well, uh, frankly, rugos. Um, <laughs> and so I was seeing bits of Lovecraft in them. And so I got the idea that it might be interesting to, uh, first of all, write a cycle of fiction stories based on the idea that the surrealists could manipulate the dreamlands. Because I've looked at, you know, certain paintings by Max Ernst or uh, other uh, surrealist painters, uh, Dali uh, or uh, Andre Masson, I thought, I'm looking at images clearly of, of the dreamlands here. Now, after that, I saw that other writers were already doing the thing of taking a high culture movement and putting Cthulhu in it. Uh, Nick uh, Mamadis, for example, has done a novella or a novel about the beat generation and Cthulhu, and I think there's also a Hunter S. Thompson Cthulhu thing, and so yes, I thought, well, it's by not... him and Brian Keane. Right. And so the, that didn't seem as fresh to me as when I first had the idea. But then there was a dragon meat panel, and uh, you remember it as if it were yesterday. As though it were yesterday. I, I rubbed my chin, and there's a, a flashback uh, yep. sound effects. Yes. And we, were at, we were at dragon meat, and people were asking um, what we'd like to see. And previously, we had salted uh, the wound by you mentioning that you wanted, you were thinking about this surrealist Paris uh, Dreamlands book, and Simon had rejected it out of hand to court, saying that he hated the Dreamlands because they were full of floating disco cats, and he, he wouldn't have any truck with such nonsense. So, uh, come the uh, What's Going On with Pelgrane panel at Dragon Meat, uh, someone, uh, someone who is not in any way a stooge or shill in the audience, I hasten to nope. add, raises their hand and says something on the order of, do you ever intend to do anything about the Dreamlands? And you responded, well... Uh, well, I've been thinking about this uh, idea where the uh, Surrealists, uh, in headquartered in Paris, learn that they can manipulate the stuff and matter of the Dreamlands, and it seems like a cool idea at the time, but uh, as in any horror story, doing new things is bad, and they discover that that kind of uh, turns on them, and maybe it's a bad thing to turn the mystical version of the collective unconscious of all mankind into these weird images of um, monstrous uh, rapist bull, bull pianos and uh, flaming heads and melting clocks, and uh, that it could then be not only our uh, Dreamlands book, but our Paris book, and that would be a companion volume then to your book, Hands of Paris, uh, which was, uh, you know, a really amazing take on both the city book and a cool 
specialist campaign frame. And in that one, of course, you play sort of skeevy book dealers um, trying to steal the Necronomicon or facsimiles thereof from one another. And so uh, that then uh, led to sort of the fully fleshed idea. And so the book now is one in which you play the major figures of the Surrealist movement. So you can play Dali or uh, Louis Bunuel or um, the poet Paul Eluar, or uh, there's some sort of... It was difficult finding female player characters because... The Surrealists were very much a boys' club, but there are some interesting figures. There's uh, Leonora Carrington, an English painter who comes along uh, a little later in the story, and uh, uh, she's sort of fleeing her family who are trying to commit her for being weird. Uh, or you have uh, Claude Cahun, who is this really fascinating, ahead-of-her-time figure in the uh, 20s and 30s. She's a lesbian woman creating collage art that has this sort of deconstructed style to it that would not at all be out of place in the 60s or 70s, That uh, who was kind of a forgotten figure and also uh, later on becomes a, a figure in the resistance, as many of the other names in the Surrealist movement wound up being uh, the poet Robert Desnos as well, uh, wound up being a big uh, resistance guy. So and the more and more I delved into the histories of all of these characters who are presented to you in the second person, it's telling you who you are and what you play, the more I found different elements of their lives that didn't have to be tweaked more than one or two percent. <laughs> or at all, in some or cases. At all, <laughs> uh, to make, to add the horror element to them. So, uh, for example, Tristan Zara, who is the, not the founder of Dada, but the guy who convinced everyone he was the founder of Dada. He was supposed to go to uh, Paris kind of early on in the story, but was delayed by a year due to his terror of the formless entity trapping him in his apartment. <laughs> and he was so afraid of this uh, creature that he wouldn't leave the apartment, except I guess occasionally he went out for to shop or whatever, but he felt bound to the apartment. Right. And even when his landlord evicted him, he then just moved into the closet of the apartment, even though there was a new tenant, due to the influence <laughs> of this formless entity. My fa my favorite one is, the, is, the, is, is it Eloard that goes to Saigon? Eloard goes to the uh, to the South Pacific. Right. This is a uh, the poet who is then, uh, his wife is named uh, Gala. She's a, a Russian refugee and, who can predict the future using cards. And, <laughs> just why she left Russia, one presumes. Uh, well, yes. And, uh, and she becomes much more famous later as uh, Gala Dali. Um, but at this point, she's uh, married to Paul Eloir, and she's in a menage a trois relationship with Max Ernst, the painter, who's another major figure in all this. Uh, but anyway, uh, Eloir uh, one day embezzles a bunch of uh, money from his uh, father's business and disappears to the South Pacific, where he's going on a tour of the islands there for some unknown reason. And then uh, Gala, for a while, pretends she doesn't know what has happened, that he's just disappeared. Turns out she actually does know and has been keeping it a secret from the other Surrealists. And she and Ernst go to the South Pacific and uh, pick him up in Saigon and take him back home. Well, there's... Nothing that rings any Lovecraftian bells about that no, uh, story. No, that that could happen to anyone. Any, any day, uh, that could be any author, really. It, yeah. it might as well be a Robert Graves uh, game that we were doing. And so what you're doing when you play Dreamhounds in Paris is that the major events of all of these people's fascinating intertwining lives are all known to us, or many of them are. There's you know little bits and questions and stuff. And obviously, as in any narrative where you adapt a real history, you can be free to massage it and change it for dramatic effect. But in part, you're living through these real life events that you already 
know are going to happen and, and play out. Uh, and then also, but then there's their secret Twilight existences going into the dreamlands and exploring, first of all, the uh, dreamlands as Lovecraft describes it, um, which a lot of people kind of feel like Simon does about it, that it's sort of a twee kind of fantasy and it's too derivative of, of uh, Robert Dunsany and people don't necessarily love it as much or what they do love about it are the bits that are the more horrific bits. But anyway, initially you go in at the beginning of the campaign and it looks like the dreamlands we know, but as you interact with it, you make it more and more like your own art. More surrealist. Yes. And so as your art is weird and horrific, suddenly you start uh, seeing these uh, build bouquet figures that are found in the paintings of Giorgio de Chirico, who have these light bulbs for heads and are otherwise they're sort of wooden painting mannequins who are manifesting. Or, you know, the nation of, uh, of Tsar, the land of Tsar, which Lovecraft describes as being strewn by uh, sort of effete poets who are trapped by its beauty and can't do anything. Well, uh, all of a sudden the ghost of uh, a sort of precursor figure to the surrealists arrives and uh, starts fashioning ovens to throw all the poets into. And it, so that becomes sort of a, a charnel house of the idea of the poet as the aesthete as opposed to the um, artist who's setting out to change the world by destroying a bunch of stuff. Yeah, the um, the surrealists had a real. I mean, even just reading their manifestos, it's got a, a sort of a strongly Lovecraftian. We're remaking the world by violence, inviting in a presence that we don't want to understand type approach to it. And then there's like quotes from Aragon's uh, manifestos and stuff like that that you just you don't have to tweak at all. And it's like obviously it's the mythos when you think about it. It's absolutely the case that what they said they were doing was they were not necessarily they claimed interested in the art world or being famous as artists or poets or, or filmmakers, but the mission was to create a worldwide psychic revolution through their art that would utterly change society and knock down the old authoritarian structures and uh, remake the world by remaking humanity from the Freudian subconscious up. So that that does not require tweaking. That is already there. That's why the metaphor is is apt in the first place and in certain cases for example if you decide to play the very influential early theater theorist and impresario and actor uh, Antonin Artaud he gradually goes insane over this period and winds up in an institution well he thinks he's going to trigger the apocalypse with his magic cane and uh, sword, I think it is. And so the, and he also thinks that he's being molested by demonic entities. So the description in the second person that gives you his bio for you to play, if you choose to play him, that just describes all of that as being true, which in this world is. It's true. It is, it is all true. It is, right. Yeah. That's, that's what happened. Yeah. The, um, the, the, the sort of second person bio is one of those bits that you put into Dreamhounds that I thought really, really works better than you'd think, even when you're thinking theoretically. You're thinking, well, that's kind of a clever idea. And then you read it, and it's like, you do this, and you do that, and you do the other thing, and you have uh, had to flee to, uh, the South Pacific because of a thing, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it really pulls you, the, the reader player, into the setting in an interesting way. And, of course, I ripped it off pretty much immediately for 
uh, the School of Night uh, KWAS that I just did because it was just too good an idea to to let you uh, be the only person doing. <laughs> well, that's what it, I I want my cool ideas to get into the bloodstream of gaming. So and I'm happy and to that, that is that is uh, I am the Anopheles mosquito of your cool ideas. If you are the stagnant pond, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's a, the big challenge of pre-generated characters, right? That mm -hmm. even if you're uh, giving somebody just for a con run, uh, someone who's not a historical figure, but that you've just made up and has something to do with this scenario, just the shift of writing it in the second tense, which has its own, or sorry, in the second person, which has its own challenges. For example, it's very hard to begin a sentence in the second person with anything other than the word you, but yeah. it's sufficiently powerful that it sort of creates that connection that people think that they only get when they create the character themselves. But mm -hmm. it's just a simple language trick that if the characters are interesting enough and these real people with their crazy lives that all intersected with each other are so much more vivid and, and weird and particular than anybody you could ever possibly make up, that it just seemed like the, the obvious uh, approach to that. Another way that the project tries to get you into this very particular headspace of the Surrealists, which is not only in the 1930s, but is in France and may have uh, a sort of a very different idea of what an art movement does and how it has an official leader who can uh, excommunicate <laughs> you or decide who's really a Surrealist. And uh, this uh, guy, uh, Andre Breton, who will have right. to give his own segment later is this really fascinating, incredibly contradictory guy who believed in the wild craziness of surrealism, but himself was extremely doctrinaire and uh, narrow-minded and uh, sort of set himself up as the leader of this group. In the Anglo world, that just seems nuts that anyone would yeah. ever put up with him, let alone give him the, the psychic power that they gave him. But in France, it makes much more sense that any movement, and cultural movements included, has an official hierarchy and a structure and right, exactly. you know, there's a comedy Francaise and there's, you know, classical painting and you know, that there, there's a language Academy. There's a, a structure and an organization for anything uh, creative, even something that's seeking to rip all of the structures out of creativity and something that and Breton's power of the group is something that's hard to just sort of convey just by telling it to you. So for that, you want to pick up the book of ants, which is the, uh, is to dream hounds of Paris, uh, what the book of smoke is to book hounds of uh, London. So it's a little, uh, small paper book format, sort of trade paperback size book. And in this case, it's a discovered diary of the forgotten surrealist poet, Henri Salem. And, he takes you through all of his experiences meeting members of the group and it's written in diary format. And so if you read that, it sort of is the inspirational fiction that you then emulate when you play the game. And it introduces you to all the major figures. It introduces you to the milieu of the Paris avant-garde art scene in the twenties and thirties. And it takes you through how you would, one way that you might interact with the dreamlands and how all those horror imagery uh, items might come up and how what happens if you go and talk to Randolph Carter or what happens when you seek out King Curanes. And so the, this is not a chronicle of the things that do happen in your series, but it's something that you can use as a springboard to get sort of an idea of where one direction you might go, and then you use that and go off in your direction, and you create that. Sort of in the same way that if you were playing a game of Victorian adventure, you might read the Flashman novels, not because you're playing Flashman, but because these are the sorts of adventures that a surrealist would get himself into in the in the Dreamhounds universe. 
Exactly so, yeah. Um, and so it's it's written in a diary format, so it's not, uh, there are bits and bytes. So if you just want to, you know, learn about, you think Marcel Duchamp is showing up next week and you want to get a quick read on how to play Marcel Duchamp, you just flip to that section and then you, uh, as a GM, you can get all sorts of ideas of uh, the sort of scenes you can play out and kind of what flavor they have. Right, yeah. Or as a player, you can um, have the familiarity with Duchamp that you kind of need if you want to feel really comfortable working him into the fiction and and saying, oh, it's my old buddy Marcel Duchamp from back in the day when we used to hang out in Zurich and drink absinthe together or whatever it was. Yeah, and so you you feel a little more grounded in it because, you know, this is the highest of high concept books and Mm -hmm. uh, we went ahead and and did it because, you know, I've, uh, whenever in the past I've come up with something and I thought, oh, maybe this is too conceptual for people, but I'll do it anyway. Those turn out to be the really popular things. So um, I'm... I think I've done a reasonable job of uh, presenting uh, sort of a grounding in it. And of course, you contributed as well. You did a uh, chapter on uh, the French occult of the period. Yes, which is like the French occult in most periods, more screwed up than you can imagine. Um, The 30s are especially pregnant because not only do you have the sort of normal occult, you know, goings around uh, alchemy and and whatnot, Uh, although you have, like, the greatest alchemist of the 20th century vanishes in 1927, so he sort of becomes a shadowy figure for a lot of uh, French occultists at the time. But also, you've got the rise of not just fascism with the secret societies that were promoting fascism in France in real history, but you have the synarchy, which we mentioned uh, previously in our, uh, in, in our, uh, uh, I think it was consulting occultist, right? We talked about yes. the, the synarchy. And then you've also got the birth of what will eventually become the Holy Blood, Holy Grail, uh, Merovingian nonsense comes out of, uh, stories and seeds that the guys who made it up in the sixties set in the 1930s. So you take them at their word and say, okay, let's assume that a mysterious bloodline is revealed in the thirties to these French occultists. What does that sound like? Oh, that's right. It sounds like the freaking King in Yellow is what it sounds like. And so <laughs> I, I tie the um, uh, the um, the Roi's finance and the Merovingians and, and this sort of Pierre Plantard farcical. He's not really the bloodline of Christ. That's just something that, you know, British researchers misunderstand. He's of a, a much more ancient and noble and powerful bloodline, the bloodline of, of, uh, of the Hyades and of Haster. And so that's, you know, that, that notion that um, I, I sort of went a little Tim Powers where you have the Pierre Plantard, who is now this sort of elderly, you know, professional impersonator, I guess, of himself. But uh, you have the, he's a teenager back in the day. And what what is he going to be except the subject of some horrible magical experiment? And so, kind of making the the magic of Paris reflect both the sort of sense of experimenting with the world to change it, the way that you know you have as the main focus of Dreamhounds, but also making it sort of true to the real grotty conspiratorial life that was Paris in the 1930s. And then I've been reading a ton of Alan First espionage books, so it's been great to go back into into the Paris that he writes about from a, a Cthulhuvian uh, viewpoint and, and look at the at the shadowy forces behind La Cagoule or behind um, uh, the, the French Old Boys uh, Club or the Bourbaki or some of these guys. And the city guide section, uh, we figured we should have someone who actually speaks French on the team. Yes, um, just as a, as a hilarious note. Steve Dempsey did the uh, guide to Paris in the 60s, and, or sorry, in the uh, 20s and 30s. And uh, so finally I know what an arrondissement is and how that all works and have more of a sense of uh, the places that they 
uh, went to and where your characters will go in the course of the game. And the uh, I was just looking through the PDF of the finished book today, and it is uh, gorgeous. I am yeah. biased, but I think <laughs> this may be the best-looking trail book yet. The uh, layout is really great. There are ants creeping down the margins, which is really yeah, delightful. There, and there, there's, there are little visual jokes and elements that, A, I mean, they look great in the PDF, but I cannot wait to see them, you know, manifest in the physical book as you flip through it and you're like, hey, did that background element move? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's kind of messed up. And I just, I, you know, the, um, who did the d- design for that? Was that Sarah or who, who put that together? The uh, layout artist is not actually credited, so I'm not sure whether uh, they're working from oh, Jerome's Of course not. Template. <laughs> the layout artist is, is an uncredited mysteriously. mysterious figure who did it over three days and then sent it in. The, the, the ants got him. Right. Um, but uh, uh, Kat Tobin at uh, Pugrain did an incredible job on the art direction, and there's yeah. uh, uh, color plates, and they just look uh, jaw-dropping. I think even if you don't want our dumb old words, you will want it just for the, uh, just for the drawings. It's really yeah, lovely. And it's it's great. There's even an illustration of Sex Hitler. Sex so, Hitler. Uh, well, I, th- uh, I think we should we should uh, leave as as a taunt, a tantalizing taunt for for later. For a future, yes, we'll explain Sex Hitler in a future segment. So anyway, that's uh, what's available for uh, pre-order now, and it will be lovely uh, podcast fodder for many weeks to come. Yes, and if you have uh, wanted to get your bookhounds across the channel and out in the sunlight, uh, there is a bookhounds of Paris sidebar that can let you link those two campaigns because we we love all of our high concept weirdos equally and the physical books will be uh, like ken and i at dragon meet in london on december 6th so show up there and touch them touch them often have you said to yourself, if only there were an equivalent to Robin Laws's brilliant, award-winning, improvisational Armitage Files campaign, only for Knight's Black Agents, Ken Height's vampire spy thriller RPG. More often than you might believe, Robin. So often, in fact, that I went and made one, called the Dracula Dossier, and it's kickstarting now. You interest me strangely. That's just how I interest, I suppose. Does this dossier have any connection to Bram Stoker's immortal novel? It's not a novel, Robin. It was the after-action report of Operation Edom, the first 1894 attempt by British intelligence to recruit a vampire. We've unredacted Stoker's first draft of that report, and now the truth can be told. Told in the form of a collaborative, improvisational spy thriller gaming, through the hyper-surveilled streets of London and the desolate Carpathian Mountains, I devoutly hope. Your hopes are answered. You play burned spies who follow the clues in the Dracula dossier to hunt and kill Dracula for good 120 years later. Clues, you say? Clues, I do say. Not just the sources and methods Stoker's first draft revealed, but annotations to the dossier made by three generations of MI6 analysts tracking Edom's operations since then. A doomed commando operation in World War II Romania, a mysterious mole hunt in 1970s London, and the dubious 2005 decision to unleash Dracula on Al-Qaeda as the ultimate deniable asset. And since everyone knows the story of Dracula, players can jump into the action anywhere they want, investigate any lead, and find danger and mystery waiting for them. Danger? Mystery? Dozens of NPCs with many possible agendas? Possibly vampirized organizations from the Romanian secret police on down? Locations from Carfax to a CIA black site in Bucharest, 
and maybe even a magic item or two, if that's the kind of thing you want to look for in your game, of course. So to sum up, the Dracula dossier is a fully improvisational Knight's Black Agents campaign built around the secret history of both Stoker's novel and of European espionage, full of dangerous encounters and subtle conspiracies, and it's kickstarting now. And just like Edom did in 1894, I've brought in an Irish writer to do all the hard bit. Hellgrain <laughs> superstar Gareth Ryder Hanrahan is busily writing up a stretch goal or three even as we speak. You, Gareth, Bragg, Stoker, Van Helsing, Count Dracula, could this game get any more bloated with blood and or awesomeness? You'll have to follow the clues to the Kickstarter page to find out, Robin. Clues like Pelgrain, Dracula, Dossier. But bring an appetite for adventure, because we're cooking with garlic. All of this talk of France has me thinking of food. It might be due to the smell of roast garlic and the simmering of soup in the other room. So that tells me that we've once more entered the Food Hut. And this time it's Food Hut by request. Ryan Macklin wants us to talk about herbs. And I guess uh, I'm going to uh, narrow that down a bit to talk uh, about... He may herbs. want us to talk about herbs. Herbs. I'm talking about fresh herbs, I think, because that's uh, fresh herb season has just ended in terms of what's out on my deck. Uh, we do some mm -hmm. container gardening here at uh, uh, Shea, Robin, and Valerie, and so we have a, a fine selection of uh, fresh herbs waiting to go into things, and we can talk about uh, what's worth growing and what's maybe not worth growing. But the number one tip I would get about uh, if you're working with fresh herbs at all is they go into whatever you're making late in the process right. that yeah. uh, a long cooking period will just turn them to mush and whatever flavor they have will dissipate. So just in the last uh, few minutes of whatever it is you're doing, uh, take your chopped herbs and uh, add them uh, to the mix. Now, obviously that doesn't apply if you're making a salad because everything is, is uh, presumably uncooked in that. But for cooked dishes, you want to put them in late so that you get the maximum flavor, maybe four to six minutes. At, Although at for your for your more pungent herbs like thyme and rosemary and oregano, you can put those in earlier because they're more robust. And which is why, as you can tell, these are the ones that you're going to be able to buy dried that are still worth anything. Right. Yeah. Your your rosemary can sit on top of a a steak if you're roasting it, or mm -hmm. uh, you know that that can. Uh, survived due to its uh, sort of cactusy nature. Yeah. But uh, I would say, first of all, that the king of herbs has got to be your basil. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, I love basil, unless you count garlic as an herb, in which case, obviously, garlic is, is, the, is, the, is the lord of all. But given... Well, I count garlic as an aromatic. So aromatic. Oh, I, right. And suggests we should do an aromatic hut. We, we could, we could, we could uh, or an allium hut. We can do garlic and onions together as, as the same thing that they the are. The onion is also an aromatic. Right. Um, anyway, but uh, yes, I think that the uh, basil is uh, somehow, it's one of those things that is both perfect and no one doesn't like it and it's still underrated. It's, I don't even know what that would be. That's like, you know, the Colt 1911 of herbs, I guess. Yes. And in terms of growing, it, uh, it grows well mm -hmm. and you can get uh, different varieties. Now, the only two that I think are really worth planting are your Italian basil and your Thai basil. Um, when you go to a uh, garden center these days, you will see a lot of different varietals of your mainline herbs. You've got, you know, your lemon thyme or your peppermint uh, oregano or whatever. I don't think there's actually peppermint <laughs> oregano, but... Well, if it, if it happens, we'll know that you've changed the dreamlands. Right, exactly. But there's all these oddball things that you get now, mm -hmm. and um, almost none of them are, are 
worth anything, or you can't really tell that. But uh, certainly, even just for the aesthetics, the Thai basil is a little bit uh, different, and that's what you want to put in your cold rolls and, and so forth. So mm-hmm. I would say get those two kinds of basil if you are planting. Yeah, the basil also um, goes... It, 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 the, the great thing about basil is it sort of stretches across a whole broad uh, variety of, of flavors. So basil works both with, you know, for example, in Italian cooking, basil works both with red sauce and with white sauce, which very few other herbs do, right? I mean, with most herbs, for example, you wouldn't necessarily put oregano in a white sauce, but you can put basil in either one, and it'll it'll contribute something different yet the same to, to each sort of complex of flavors. Uh, it's extremely versatile. Um, for planting, also, I, one thing that I'm always very happy to have are chives. Uh, the great thing about those is they uh, get growing really early. They reseed themselves. So if you have a container, uh, or for that matter, if you are one of these fancy schmancy people who can plant things in earth around their house. In theory, we could, but we have a, we have a neighbor with a very large tree. It uh, <laughs> grows uh, sort of naturally. You can uh, actually, our chives are ones that we took from our previous place and they were just growing in the front yard on their own and they they're very hardy they are uh, among the longest lasting when it starts to get cold if you live in a climate where it does start to get cold and they'll reseed themselves you might get one or two or or three generations of chives and they're really great in omelets or in salads Uh, there's something that is uh, you know doesn't need to be cooked to bring out the flavor and again there's a lot of uh, different stuff you can do with them. You can serve them with cheese. Especially goat cheese. Goat cheese are the softer cheeses, like the uh, Italian soft white cheeses. They can go in a lot of things and uh, kind of create, uh, have an interesting uh, uh, chivey flavor. They're, you can't really compare them to anything else. They're just chives. They're, they're, they're sort of like um, uh, tiny little scallions, in a way. I think that uh, in talking about easy to grow, with the exception of my backyard always, is mint. Uh, which is super easy to grow. It will grow like it, it will stink, grow as a matter of fact. Literally like mint. Um, and I, th- I think that uh, mint is something that is also maybe a little bit underloved for savory cooking. I mean, everyone, of course, loves to, you know, shove it into lemonade or put it in mojitos. And why wouldn't you? Because it's wonderful. But it's also uh, really good in, in savory cooking, not just with lamb, which a lot of people sort of understand from the lamb and mint jelly uh, combo of, of one's youth. But also, you can put it on, on chicken, you can put it on, I think you, you could, in theory, put it on beef, although I've never really seen a good beef and mint recipe that wasn't basically a stir-fry of some kind. Do you have a, do you have a, a use for mint that people have perhaps not expected? In a salad, uh, in a green salad with uh, some sort of berry as well to bring out the contrast and then use a balsamic vinegar dressing. So if you have a mint strawberry or mint raspberry or even mint blueberry uh, salad, those are really great. And of course, it's a staple of Vietnamese cooking. And, and I think and I already Middle mentioned. Eastern cooking too. Obviously. Yeah. And, um, and again, that's something that you can put in a, in a cold roll uh, using a rice paper wrap and veggies, and you can combine your uh, mint and your uh, your basil. Yeah, if your if your cuisine is anywhere you know south of the Aral Sea, <laughs> and you know between say the Mediterranean and the Sea of Japan, that's it. Your mint will find a, a home there, and a lovely home it will be. Another favorite, although difficult to grow for very long, uh, you can they they grow like crazy, but they don't last in a flavorful way for very long. Are dill, and uh, if you uh, have anything that that you want to put blue cheese in, you should also, or you can also put dill in. And uh, that's something where uh, I sometimes feel herb guilt to buy these things 
in the store and pay three bucks bucks for you know you always get a ton of whatever herb it is and you end up throwing yeah. out you know eighty percent of it but you just have to think that well really you're paying for the service of having the small amount of whatever herb it is that you want to buy right. and you yeah. just have to not feel guilty about the fact that certain of them don't freeze and it feels wasteful to toss them but you know a little dill goes a long way and you buy them in these gigantic, gigantic fistfuls mm -hmm. but uh but they're also very versatile and they're really good in uh, uh vegetable roasts mm -hmm. so if you've got a roast pan full of uh you know garlic bulbs and uh parsnips and carrots and potatoes and uh, peppers if you want to add uh, a little bit of uh, a dill to that as well uh and uh, it can be in there a little longer than it's sort of in the mid-range of how long it'll survive. Uh, but you can sort of mix that in, and that really brings everything out, especially, again, if you're pairing it with the cheese as part of the uh, your, your vegetable roast. And, and also, let me, let me say that if you have not yet made a dill and lemon soup, and you can use the dill and lemon in, in a lot of different bases, but I think just in a, a chicken soup with, with some kind of pasta to, to add a creamy starchness to it so that there's thickness of flavor, man... Dill and lemon is one of those perfect flavor combinations like bacon and eggs or peanut butter and jelly. There's just no words for how good that tastes. And so when you've bought your giant chunk of, of dill and you've made your roast with it and you're thinking, gosh, I, I have all this leftover dill. I feel like a jerk. Make some dill and lemon uh, soup and it will, uh, you can make it with orzo. Uh, there's like a, a bunch of Greek recipes that w with lemon that you can put dill into that will just be crazily good. So anything that you could put lemon on, you can also do a dill and lemon on, and it will be a really great combo. It, it may overpower meats in some way, so you might want to just stick to roasting chicken or something with it where the, where the, the, the flavor is, is, is part of the point. But I tell you, a dill and lemon soup is a thing of the, of, the, of the gods. It is divine. Another less celebrated fresh herb would be tarragon. And the rule there is anything that you uh, can put eggs in, you uh, can add tarragon to as well. Also the secret ingredient in chicken, Kiev. Uh, right, yes. And the mention of Kiev points out that there's two varieties of tarragon, and one of them is uh, not very hardy if you're trying to grow it, and that's the French tarragon. But the robust Russian tarragon, mm -hmm. which has had to survive <laughs> on the steppes and being uh, raided by generations of Cossacks. It's, it's almost as though there's some sort of weird parallelism going on here. Well, we, let's not be essentialist in our, our herb selections. Um, and, and then there are some herbs that I've tried to grow over the years and have fallen out of the repertoire just because I haven't figured out anything to do with them. And the weirdest one is sage, because I love sage as a dried ingredient. It's, mm -hmm. you know, one of the main ingredients of poultry seasoning, which is a big part of probably a lot of people's Christmas stuffing. But fresh sage, I just couldn't figure out anything to do with it. It sort of has kind of a, either a flavorless or sort of a dusty quality. And Have you uh, never made salt and boca then? I apparently haven't. Oh, man. It's, it, it's supposed to be veal, but obviously if you have ethical or by now price uh, problems with veal, you can make it with really thin chicken or even with some of the artisanal pork that's coming out that's, that's the thinner, uh, leaner pork. You pound out a big, well, it, it would be a schnitzel if it were a veal, but you know what I mean, a big long cutlet, and you fold it over with the sage leaves inside it, and when you cook it, the sage sort of perfumes the meat, and it, it's called salt in boca, which means sage in your mouth. And so it's a, it, it's a, it's a great, um, uh, it's a great thing. And, and Google salt and boca, there'll be recipes everywhere, but it is a great uh, and magical thing to do with fresh sage. I, I don't know that you can do it every day, but it is a, it's a, it's a fine, the, the big meal for the week or, or something 
fancy, but it but it doesn't take a ton of time, and it and it's actually pretty light because you you're making a cutlet, you're not making a big roast. That's almost enough to make me want to plant sage again next uh, spring. Well, I, I, I'm not sure that it's necessarily the, the reason to do that, but yes, absolutely, sage is, is great stuff. And so before we exit the hut, any uh, uh, major omissions? In the magical world of, um, I, I you know, I want to give a shout out, I guess, to sort of um, Herbs de Provence and Summer Savory. I think that both of those, uh, if you use Summer Savory in anything, you'll sort of have a sense that it is basically what it feels like. It, it um, uh, you know, it's the name's on the tin. It adds a savory note to whatever you're making and also sort of lightens it up, a la Summer. And Herbs de Provence, I have made a roast lamb every year for Epiphany, and... The Herbs de Provence is a fundamental part of the rub for me for the roast lamb, and I think that Herbs de Provence, which is basically a mixture of lavender and um, sa savory and a bunch of other uh, herbs, uh, is um, it, it's it's a great you know sort of utility infielder. It's sort of the the masala of French uh, the, the the garam masala of French cooking, I guess. It's like you want me to mention that thing that keeps making you jealous, Ken. <laughs> uh, so on that note, I think it's time to. Uh, exit our mouth-watering hut and enter a literary hut, perhaps with a little bit of iambic pentameter in it. by Dina Katz's birthday. Happy birthday, Dina Katz! Coming neither soon nor ever to Kickstarter, this birthday salutation celebrates the awesomeness of Dina Katz. She is a number of years old. Her husband thinks it's okay to mention on the air. Teacher of high school physics and engineering. Wielder of a mean D20. She can be seen playing D&D &D and 13th age. Born in Leningrad, she arrived on American shores at the age of 10. Personally swimming there from the Gulf of Finland. Warning, previous fact may not technically be true. You can find her on the Ken side of the Ken and Robin political spectrum. Mother of two kids, one of each kind, and wife to a man skilled in locating the finest of podcasts. So, happy, happy birthday, birthday, Dina, Dina Katz. Katz! May this greeting in some way compensate for going to Toronto, but not making it to Jelly Modern Donuts. The panel on the basement wall... The album on the table, clean, the dice that thump and bounce around, tell us we have entered an iambic quarter of the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, today we are talking about the greatest game designer of all, because he's the greatest everything of all, Mr. <laughs> William Shakespeare of Stratford-on-Avon and Dungeons-on-Dragon. Um, what, Robin, do you have to start us off in the magical world of Shakespeare? Obviously... Uh, you know, he was uh, sort of present at the creation, if you will, of uh, the drama system, since it's looking at Hamlet. It gave you yep. Hamlet's hit points that gave you the drama system in general. What else has Shakespeare done for you, Robin? Uh, well, first of all, I, I should say that this uh, segment is part of our tribute to Dina Katz's uh, birthday. Mm -hmm. And uh, then go on to answer your question, which is that I guess my biggest connection, as you mentioned, to, to Shakespeare and gaming is 
Hamlet's hit points in which we sort of break down all the beats of that narrative. And he, uh, Hamlet in particular is really interesting because it is both an investigation. It's an early uh, detective story, although it's not a um, who done it so much as a how do I prove it? Mm-hmm. Um, and like but it also, yeah. So it also <laughs> uh, just has another, these, just just one more thing, uh, Mr. Claudius. <laughs> to be or just a moment to be. Just a moment. Uh, what Mrs. Hamlet always likes to say. Anyway, enough of that. <laughs> Perhaps too much of that. So if you look to uh, Shakespeare for uh, sort of structure, I think it is really useful grounding in in storytelling of all forms because it's loosey goosey enough to kind of feel in ways like a uh, role-playing session. There's always little elements in it that were clearly added because, you know, this actor needed a big moment or, you know, there's an implausible plot bit that he just needs to get through. And so you can sort of forgive yourself if you say, well, you know, this is kind of a lame transition, but Shakespeare did the same thing when he had Hamlet go off to England and then get intercepted by pirates and come right back again, or the big long scene where Mercutio is suddenly the star of Romeo and Juliet and gets his amazing monologue that mm-hmm. has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> right. Obviously, there was an actor who was really great at monologues and uh, didn't have anything to do in Romeo and Juliet. And so you can see that there are certain things that he does that are structurally uh, very sound that you can borrow. And also there are things that he does to just most efficiently uh, tell the story or just sort of have a moment that wakes everybody up and has something uh, fun happen. So a lot of the things that we think of as elemental to storytelling come from Shakespeare. For example, uh, comic relief, the idea that Something really dire happens, as in uh, Macbeth, and then a couple of guys show up to pee on a wall and make uh, dick jokes. And that is something, of course, that you can pay attention to when you are gaming is uh, a range of moods. And I think that uh, Shakespeare, uh, certainly more so than any of the other Elizabethan writers, is the model for all current drama in that he does try to move you from one mood to another, and it's all about uh, contrast and highs and lows and uh, in that way sort of uh, and that's part of why his plays kind of encompass human experiences because there is just so much in them. Yeah, the, the, the way that Shakespeare provides sort of that entire human experience has, has been one of the things that you sort of wind up grappling with even if you come to Shakespeare from one thing like you, maybe you really love Macbeth because you like the witches and uh, it's like oh I just love that witch speech but even within the witch speech, there's all these sorts of elements going all the way out from, you know, the actual occult uh, beliefs of the high culture to, you know, Warwickshire superstition that he probably heard growing up as a kid to stuff that he had to put in to make the king happy. And, and it just so much just in the witches and then the witches interact with Macbeth and now you have another level and then Macbeth interacts with Banquo and with Lady Macbeth and with King Duncan. And before you know it, you've started from one spot. And the whole world has opened up to you. And that's something that he just does over and over and over in play after play after play. And I think that as from a sort of, I don't want to say game design, but from a game experience design perspective, it's a great way to think. Because you can say even, you know, a standard old encounter, one guy meets three witches and they seem high level so he doesn't fight them, blows up into this whole story. And of course, Shakespeare is the master of giving you plots that will just keep producing dire consequences if the heroes dither and do nothing. And that's one of the great things about Hamlet, obviously, is that even doing nothing is still doing something in the world of Hamlet. The things right, it's, it's the continue first to get reluctant worse. protagonist. Right, yeah. And reluctant protagonists are a big problem in role-playing gaming, actually, mm-hmm. uh, because there's uh, 
a lot of weird uh, tugging and pulling to have players be less protective of their characters and have them start to make the kinds of decisions that ha- make interesting things happen. Mm-hmm. So stuff happens in Hamlet when Hamlet does stuff, including when he makes mistakes. So he succeeds when he has his plan of producing a play in front of the king that's supposed to provoke a guilty reaction, which it does. Mm -hmm. And he fails when he rashly stabs the guy behind the curtain and it turns out to be Polonius instead Mm -hmm. of Claudius. Right. But but even things like the king is uh, giving up his throne for his three daughters. I mean, that could be every D&D setup, right? And you're like, well... You guys pick a daughter to be in the service of, and no matter which daughter you pick, you can either, you know, pre-plan that one of them is going to be Cordelia and one of them is going to be Goneril and one of them is going to be Regan, or you can say whichever one of them they pick is retroactively Cordelia, and now the story goes forward, and you can just have King Lear open up, and basically you've got the world's greatest dramatist providing you your campaign arc, and you don't have to follow it, you don't, Lear doesn't have to die mad, you know, France doesn't have to invade, whatever, but you've got a feeling of organic natural story that you can that you can lean on. Have you ever run a, a game that has an overt Shakespearean component as opposed to the sort of covert or structural component that we're talking about? Not per se, but I know that you had a, an Elizabethan campaign that very specifically drew on what was it, Midsummer Night's Dream? It was um, it was not Elizabethan. It was late Georgian. It was the 1760s and 50s during which. Uh, the Covent Garden Theater and the Drury Lane Theater are the great rival theaters, and it was a hero quest campaign ah. in which the God's Realm was the what our buddy Northrop Fry calls the Green Realm uh, of the the pastoral that that Shakespeare's plays open up, and that you go up into the Green Realm, and when you enact a Shakespeare play in the Green Realm, it has effects on the real world, which is a a sort of note that I've been doing mostly tongue in cheek throughout su- suppressed transmission, the notion that. Shakespeare's plays are actually occult dramaturgies intended to produce a magical effect. And I just wrote a game around that. Well, maybe Arcadia, his pastoral world, is the earlier iteration of the Dreamlands. Right, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you could you could definitely have the Dreamlands, you know, with uh, Arden and uh, Broceliand and all these other ma- magical Shakespearean forests and islands and whatnot that... that uh, uh, Prospero's Island is actually somewhere near Oriab or the Cherenarian Sea. Because there is the idea in Dreamhounds that the version of the dreamlands that you see in Lovecraft is not fixed in its style, but actually it's the result of the symbolists and the writers uh, just sort of in the 1890s. And so that it seems ancient, but it's actually new because a new generation of artists comes along every couple of generations to alter its face. It's just that the surrealists are the only ones who realize that that's what's happening. But back to Shakespeare, uh, your campaign. Yeah. And, and so in the campaign, we had uh, the, the players, uh, because I ha- I'm blessed with the world's greatest players, then started thinking, okay, we have this story going on. One of the players was playing a manticore who was the heir to the throne of Britain if a certain number of Hanovers mysteriously died. And there was a moment at which we had to decide, is he going to become a Shakespearean villain? Does he give in to his tragic flaw? of 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 uh, greed and revenge and sure enough he did and so then we're playing the whole game knowing that this is a shakespearean tragedy about to happen and that you know gave it a lot of pregnancy and then simultaneously they would do midsummer night's dream to create unions out of chaos and and they they wound up performing or or god's realm reenacting hero questing the lost love's labor's one the sequel to love's labor's lost that we know existed and we don't have it 
And so I wrote out what it was, and they found it inside a wall somewhere. And instead of publishing it, they snuck away and took it into the dream, into the gods' realm, so that they could have a really puissant piece of Shakespearean dramaturgic magic to do. And uh, I guess one last point I'd make before we move on is that because Shakespeare took great stories that already existed and refashioned them uh, with all of his mastery of dramatic structure, that also makes him really amenable to adaptation. So you can see, for example, there's a ton of great films that take Shakespeare's uh, storylines into new contexts. Um, my favorites would be the Kurosawa ones, uh, mm-hmm. Throne of Blood and Ron, I think, are, yeah. are the, the pinnacle of doing that. But that makes them, I think, uh, very adaptable to other things so that it's very easy to take his basic concepts and characters and situations and translate them into your gaming setting, no matter what that is, whether it's a science fiction world or a F20 style fantasy world, any of those things can uh, allow you to take his story elements and then introduce an interplay between them and whatever the uh, surface details of your chosen genre and setting are. And I, and just as a sort of uh, surface note, I think I went and I looked, and I think two of the plays of the 37 or however many plays you want to call into complete works and the 30-odd plays have no magical component to them. There's something magical in every single, even in ones you wouldn't think, like Othello, the, the, the handkerchief is actually sorcerous. It's enchanted. It was made with uh, love magic in it. And so there's, there's a magic item in Othello. And so you can, you can see the sort of perfect uh, world in terms of gaming of the sort of early modern Tudor world experience where they have recognizable sorts of moralities and human responses. They're not aliens like the Romans, but they also very much understand that the world is full of ghosts and fairies and devils and monsters and cannibals and witches and the Lord knows what is going to come after you. And it's it's a great, it, it's it's a very great place to play, and not just, I'm talking about not just the 16th century, but a world that feels like the 16th century. So if you can take that Shakespearean sensibility and, and translate it the way that directors sometimes do into the modern age, I think you can open up your own experience of your own age, which um, is sort of three sides around the barn, but it is what Shakespeare, I think, was in, was hoping that would happen uh, if people were still uh, looking at his plays centuries later. Your mention of the Romans brings me to sort of a tangential thought that we are very lucky whenever a culture left behind a form of theater, because there's something about that art form, the fact that it has a narrative thrust, the fact that there are people that have to communicate it, the fact that there's an audience that Mm -hmm. the play has to please, that really brings home the ethos of different cultures and times, much more so than painting or sculpture or music or any of those forms. And so even in Roman comedies, for example by Plautus, even the Romans don't seem quite so alien, right? There's some recognizable shtick that we mm-hmm. still find funny today. And uh, speaking of shtick, uh, one of our shticks is to move to the next segment when our clock tells us to do. So that's exactly what we're going to do. Exunt pursued by bear.
You all know that the computer is your friend. But when was the last time you showed the computer how much you love it? Now's your chance to fall in love with the computer all over again, citizens. A new shiny computer, fresh from the oven and ready for the 20 tons. That's right, a reboot of Paranoia is kickstarting now. The classic RPG of a darkly humorous future. Helmed by our old pal, James Wallace, godfather of indie game design. It delivers that ever-so-contemporary pick-up-and-play design with cool cards, dice, and tokens. Paired under the watchful gaze of game design titans Greg Kostikian and Eric Goldberg. It's a boxed set! You love box sets! The computer loves box sets. The computer loves you loving box sets. Everything you've ever enjoyed about Paranoia, only moderner and betterer. We're saying box set again. Our orders tell us to emphasize box set. Our orders come from the computer. We wouldn't want to disappoint the computer. And neither do you, citizen. So gather up your futuristic laser cache and drop it on Paranoia, kickstarting now until December 3rd. This time, when we enter the creaky spiderweb stairs to visit the consulting occultist, we are required to provide retinal scans and undergo a security check, because this time, the consulting occultist is talking to us in the Tradecraft Hut. And this is in response to a story that uh, was covered recently in The Guardian, and I thought was ideal Ken and Robin fodder. And that is the revelation that a black ops department of the uh, British military between around, say, 72 to 74, uh, which is the height of your original wave of Satanism in pop culture, your exorcists and, and so on, that they started spreading rumors of Satanist activities of black masses in Northern Ireland in order to introduce unease and confusion in a uh, some sort of attempt to uh, dampen the conflict. Ken, what was your first response when you saw this story? My first response was um, someone really just wanted to set up black masses uh, and, and, and spray paint pentagrams on things. Um, I, I, I sort of see where, I mean, the, the notion being that because the relig the, the conflict at, in, in that era was very religiously colored, that if you could present something about the conflict that would be anathema to both religions, both, not religions, both denominations, both Protestants and Catholics, they would then put their own efforts at suppressing the conflict as opposed to inflaming it. Because if, if they looked and they said, oh my goodness, these paramilitaries are creating a climate in which black masses and demon possession can flourish, maybe we ought to, you know, tone it down a notch. And and so the, the notion being that you sort of are going, you know, at one remove trying to influence the churches to influence the violence to tone it down. And so I can sort of see in theory where someone would think that would work, but I can't see anyone actually believing that that would work because although they, uh, even the Guardian says that it did at least scare kids and keep them off the streets, which is something, it's still, you know, it, it's never going to happen that if you are a religiously stoked uh, paramilitary, be you Catholic or Protestant, if word comes back that there are black masses being done, your first reaction is not going to be, oh my goodness, my excesses have stoked a black mass. Your response is going to be, those bastards on the other side are starting black masses. Now we have to crush them even more because um, uh, the, the, the power of, of Christ compels us. And, and I can't really see anyone who's ever, you know, even been to church, much less 
been in a religious war for two years thinking that this was a super terrific idea. Yeah, so the, the <laughs> psychological operations of this uh, idea uh, seem to leave out the psychological part. <laughs> yes. Um, but as inspiration for uh, crazy uh, story ideas, it's, of course, an incredibly uh, rich vein. And I think... I think the stretch that they were going for is sort of the idea, weirdly enough, that you see in latter-day Batman adaptations, where it's like the existence of the Batman not only destroys, but also enables and creates the mm -hmm. madness of Gotham. Right. And I think the, that was supposed to be the idea, is that, you know, we're making everything spiral out of control. Let's, let's stop... Uh, hating and get back together because otherwise the Satanists will will come and make it even worse. And yeah, that's just very odd. And I think speaks to the fact that a pattern that you see again and again in espionage operations is that uh, if you put a, somebody in charge of doing weird psychological things in a conflict, they just think up the weirdest things to do uh, that don't really, you know, it's because you can do them and because it seems messed up that you do them, not because you or whatever rationalization you have for, for doing them works. Now, in terms of adaptations, the really obvious uh, setting where this has to take place is the esoterrorists, mm -hmm. uh, where yeah. the idea is is that there are a group of uh, human people trying to uh, gain occult power by increasing people's ideas of fear and weirdness and madness and things going awry. So clearly this was an operation where somebody sold it to their boss as helping out uh, and dampening down the troubles. But the real reason that whoever it was was doing it was uh, as part of an esoteric ritual in order to summon some weird cr creatures. So you could either actually do an esoterist's uh, adventure or a series of adventures uh, set in Northern Ireland at that time, which I think would be uh, really freaky and disturbing because <laughs> one of the whole ideas yes. behind the esoterists <laughs> is that, you know, the... Imaginary monsters that we like to think of in, in the horror genre are nowhere near as horrific as things that happen in the news that people do to each other and that by juxtaposing those you sort of um, uh, freshen and intensify the horror. And so you could certainly do that as, as either a one-off or part of a series of uh, sort of 70s style uh, Ordo Veritatis uh, scenarios. Uh, how else would you use this? I, I want to mention that I think that uh, one of the fun things you could do with this in the Esoterrorists is that it's a uh, sort of cult or denomination or fanatical sect within the esoterists that are, honest to God, orthodox Satanists. And they don't hold with your notion of the outer black, and they don't believe that these entities are anything. They believe in Satan. And they're angry that all this, you know, weird, creepy stuff that they're doing never brings good old goat-headed Satan. And they're like, we're going to make good old goat-headed Satan appear. We're going to find the most Christian population in the world that is currently slaughtering each other, and we're going to bring Satan to life. And the, the notion that even within the esoterists, that are, there are esoterists who are so bent as to not understand the sort of uh, constructed nature of, of all of these evils, um, and that they are, you know, they're orthodox, you know, Christian esoterists, basically. I think that would be, add a fun uh, religious element to the uh, less fun religious element that was the, the Northern Irish Troubles. I mean, looking at it, I obviously want to know what that unit was doing everywhere else the British were. I want to know what that unit was doing in Malaya. Um, you know, there was a, a CIA uh, colonel named Ed Lansdale who began as an advertising executive um, and is apparently torn from the pages of my madness dossier, but in the Philippines did counterinsurgency uh, fake vampire operations, which is how I found out about him. He would take Huck gorillas and he would string them up from trees and poke holes in their necks and have the blood all run out. 
And so the Huck gorillas would find their guys, you know, h- h- hanging from trees, uh, drained by vampires because there's a, a native, uh, vampire spirit in the Philippines called the Aswang that he was trying to, uh, create images of the Aswang on certain areas he didn't want the gorillas to go. He wanted to sort of create psychological channelizing. And then he would do things like sneak into the, uh, Huck occupied towns and paint the eye of God on walls near the Huck leaders. So that when they would wake up and they would look out and they would see the eye of God staring at them and it would mess with them like in a Fitzgerald novel. <laughs> he had, he had all manner of, um, of weird stuff that he did in, um, the Philippines. Then he went and he tried to do it again in Vietnam with the Montagnards and with, um, uh, uh, some of the other people. Uh, he hired Vietnamese astrologers to produce, uh, almanacs, just like out of the old, uh, British, uh, playbook where you have the fake almanac with Nostradamus prophesying that Hitler will go down. He had Vietnamese astrologers write prophecies that, uh, the North will see terrible times and storms and the South will be happy and clement and peaceful. And then they would, uh, his genius was to not give the almanacs away, but to sell them so that people, <laughs> um, uh, would, would know that they were, uh, for real. And, uh, and so this guy Lansdale is obviously part of this same group. And so I, I want to see the guys, in, in, you know, the, the British, um, uh, black operations in Malaya and Ed Lansdale meeting in Bangkok somewhere and comparing notes and the notion that there's this sort of, in the same way that there was the Anglo-American espionage cooperation and Anglo-American military cooperation, there was also Anglo-American esoteric, uh, cooperation that the sort of, you know, I don't know what you would call it, like seventies techno thriller, Dennis Wheatley type game. I think that'd be fun to play. Right. And we've got, I guess, other points in history where, uh, the occult and espionage intersect, uh, most notably uh, uh, with Christopher Marlowe, who mm-hmm. was both a spy and someone who wrote about occult forces. Are there um, other uh, sort of points in history that you could string together to make a uh, sort of a time-spanning campaign where uh, different generations uh, encountered the same reverberations of the same storyline? Well, we talked about uh, the weird occult component not just of, of good old German fascism, and therefore a lot of the German operations like the Ananerba that are, that are um, uh, occult operations under the cover of espionage operations or vice versa, uh, in the sense of that they're trying to find magical ritual stuff. They're not mad magicians, but you know what I mean. And then we talked about that in the context of Paris, of, of, the, of the various conspiracies in Paris that are both magical and political, in the same way that everything in, in France had to have a political aspect. You couldn't just paint floating apples, you had to do it like a Stalinist, and if you weren't a Stalinist painting floating apples, there would be harsh words for you. Uh, and, and so I think that the uh, the 30s are another great pregnant time for, for this kind of thing, and I, I'll bet that if you went back and looked more into it, I mean, Saint-Germain, we mentioned him, he was a possible go-between and spy for Louis uh, the 14th, um, or the 15th, rather, in, in Europe, in uh, England, and possibly Austria, and so once you've got Saint-Germain involved, you've got, of course, the, the notion that the Jacobins and the revolutionaries were part of an occult secret society, so you could uh, work something up there. And, of course, the, the Okrana, the KGB is full of, or the pro, pre-KGB is full of weird sort of quasi-religious imagery because the Tsar uh, had sort of a, a weird quasi-religious nature, and, the, and there are occult components. Even going into the Bolsheviks, the early Cheka, there was a guy named Gleb Boki who was um, the cryptography head of the of the Cheka and was also a honest to god looking for the hollow earth Shambhala 
magician guy. And, and it makes total sense that uh, if you're interested in a world of secrecy and if you're interested in a world that is way more strange and bizarre and uh, has all these secrets in it than uh, the ordinary uh, waking world, uh, of course you would both be bent toward occult realities and toward the secret conspiracy world of, uh, of espionage. And I guess that's sort of, this is the nexus point where almost all of the segments in our podcast, except for the ones about uh, cooking basil, uh, come together. <laughs> right. And um, I'm sure that we could, uh, we could probably pull that in with herbalism, right? Um, there's uh, right, there's yes. element of herbal magic uh, going back to, um, you know, when Shakespeare, when, when, uh, when Ophelia is going crazy and she's pulling apart all the herbs and flowers and talking about what their what their fundamental natures are, that's an occult action. There you go. Everything we're talking about is the same thing. CIA had a had an operation called Operation Often or MK Often, which was basically I think probably came out of their their um, notions of fooling people. So they had stage magicians like John Mulholland who gave them advice, and I think that they took that into the next step and apparently. According to researchers, I like to say that in that voice, um, researchers, there was a CIA operation that went and looked into astrologers and fortune tellers and black magicians and Satanists. And again, this was the 70s. This was when all of that stuff was right there on the headlines next to the troubles in Ireland and next to the fallout from Vietnam, from Ed Lansdale's last brilliant idea. So I think that, uh, is there any juice that we've yet to wring from this idea of... Uh... Uh, British black ops or psyops uh, staging the evidence for black masses uh, during the trouble, or have we uh, pretty much covered the waterfront? Well, I, I think that what we have done is we have we have super juiced it. We have we have got nothing but juice. This whole hut is now drowning in juice. Uh, we 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 could be here all day and not ring even the tiniest fragment of it. Well, then, before we pursue that metaphor any further, I think it's time to uh, declare victory uh, once again and. Uh, Go drink some delicious juice. Right, in Bangkok with Ed Lansdale, perhaps. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. Dina Katz's Birthday. Mongoose Publishing. And Ken's Dracula Dossier Kickstarter for Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. He who steals your purse steals trash, so empty it out by hitting the donate button at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or basil chicken by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>